Hello and welcome to the Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Today we're going to continue on in our study through the Gospel of Mark. We will be starting in chapter 5 and we'll go through verses 1 through 20. Um, Father God, Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I just pray that uh, your word would go forward, Lord, and not my own. Father, I pray that you would just go before each and every one of us in this group, each and every one of us that are listening, Lord, wherever we may be. Father, that you would meet us where we're at, Lord, and, and just teach us, show us something new, Lord. Help us to learn, help us to grow, and help us to know you more. Father, all we do is seek you. And so, Father, I just thank you, Lord. I lift up this time to you, and I just pray and ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 5, and the title of this message is Jesus Expels a Legion of Demons. So, Demonic activity has been a major part of two different time periods. It was prevalent during the time of Elijah, and it is ramped up in the period of time that we are covering now in the time of Jesus. And we know from Scripture that it will again be a major problem in the days shortly before Jesus' return. We know that de demonic possession is a tool used by Satan as a means of distorting and destroying a person's relationship with God. Possession often occurs in people who dabble in the black arts. You know, we've seen it as a result of a Ouija board usage. Uh, drug use is another means when a person loses grip on reality. Through the use of narcotics, the door is open for demonic entities to move in. Um, taking interest in the occult or mediums is another form of, invest, uh, of inviting possession. You know, the main reason I believe is that, though, is the hatred of God and godly things can lead a person to be used by, used by and possessed by Satan and his minions to further draw people away from God. You know, it all comes from the attitude of our heart. If our heart is not for God, then we leave ourselves open to the attacks from the enemy or, or the attacks from, uh, you know, from Satan to that possession. You know, you become his vessel and not God's. Now, we are warned in Scripture about taking part in any such forms of demonic invita invitation. Uh, in fact, uh, doing so can lead to judgment and destruction. If we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 13, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you will dispossess listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. You know, in fact, if we look at that, God used the nation of Israel as his method of judgment and removing the nations like the Canaanites for their participation in the pagan ways of living, practicing witchcraft and other such forms of demonic activity. You know, we can look back to various times in various locations and find tribes that were involved in demonic acts like demon sacrifice, like human sacrifices, I should say, and other such acts. In fact, if we look now, the tribe that we refer to as the Americans are in a fight internally about the right to sacrifice children, especially the unborn, as a means of protection of the lifestyles of the unbelieving parents. Right? That, that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. All this stuff keeps reciprocating, and it's happening right now. It's what's leading our nation right now into such moral decay. 
Because as long as sin is prevalent, we lose the blessing of, of the Lord. You know, judgment and destruction is assured for all that practice these acts. You know, for all that uh, that find thrills as, as entertainment and such activities and so forth. You know, the, the, it's going to happen. It's not just a funny thing. It's not a joke. It's not, um, it, you know, it, it's not entertainment. You, when people go into these black arts, when people are going and looking at these psychics and doing all this other stuff, you know, they really are inviting some pretty bad stuff into their lives. And so we've got to stay away from it. You know, what can begin as a thrill-seeking afternoon for some can turn into a nightmare for others. You know, demons enter the bodies of unbelieving hosts and begin to take over their minds. Remember, demons are spirits. Spirits are immaterial, just like our souls are immaterial. Our minds are as well. You know, our minds and our brains are two different things. Minds are the intelligence that we possess. Possess. It is something that, uh, you know, will be with us when the physical body is gone and, the, and, dust and, and dust. You know, the mind is eternal, though. Until we receive our physical bo uh, resurrected body at the, uh, at the second coming, we exist. We're always going to be there. You know, that immaterial part of us, that immaterial mind is always going to exist. Now, I believe in heaven uh, as a soul, we will exist. Uh, as a mind, we may perceive ourselves uh, in heaven as having the physical body, but our focus will be so much on Jesus as we worship and praise him that, you know, it will be, it will not really matter if we have a body or not. You know, the New Testament mentions uh, souls 18 times, and each pertains to the salvation of the soul, the redeemable quality of man. Since the body is corruptible, it is finite, it is subject to decay and death, where the soul is not. You know, the soul is immaterial and therefore does not atrophy. Something that is not subject to decomposition is therefore finite, uh, that, you know, basically going to last for eternity because there is nothing to go away. You know, our souls are finite because they have a beginning, but eternal in that they have no end. Um, we as believers, when we give our lives to Christ, when we truly repent and allow the Holy Spirit to take hold of our lives, are not subject to demon possession. God had the ultimate authority over Satan, and Satan is unable to challenge that authority. He may try and sway and tempt us in many ways, but he cannot overtake us. In James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's get going in uh, our study through Mark now. Jesus expels a legion of demons. In uh, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in, in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So two forces that influence the possessed. As we enter the scene of the graveyard, where the possessed men dwell, we will look first at the events leading to the arrival of Jesus. You know, if you'll recall in our last study, Jesus calmed a mighty storm on the Sea of Galilee. 
Some speculate that the storm was an attempt by Satan to kill Jesus before he could get to and reach the men that were in desperate need of revival. And this could be true because uh, when Jesus arrives, he is greeted by two desperately wicked, uh, desperately possessed individuals. You know, the country of the Gadarenes, or Gad, uh, is, uh, that, that is there, um, was the, the land that they were entering was the, the land of Gad that was inherited by the tribe of Gad, one of the 12 tribe, uh, sons of Israel. You know, it, it was by this point a largely Gentile populated area, though. This area is located in the, to the southeast of Capernaum, where Jesus was headquartered for the most part. Some, uh, some scholars say that the city of Decapolis is the setting. Uh, some say that it is El Carusi, that is a journey to the lake. You know, there's no way to really tell, but the text says that as soon as they stepped off the boat, they came into contact with the possessed man. Now, this obviously happened right there on the shores, basically. You know, they were within eyesight of the shores. Uh, and, and so it, it was a pretty quick happening that, that took place here. Now, Jewish people considered tombs to be a, a popular haunts for demons. Many ancient cultures would bring uh, offerings to the dead, and this is something that they believed was uh, enticed the demons to stick around. Now, I think then... Uh, as now, many perceive that ghosts are the disembodied spirits of the dead. Uh, and so by bringing those offerings and seeing those offerings gone, I think the people were um, believing that they were appeasing their loved ones that were gone. Right. They were, you, you know, it's like leaving cookies for Santa Claus. And uh, when you're a kid and dad comes out and eats them because there's no Santa Claus. But, you know, the kids still believe that, oh, look, Santa took the cookies and he was really happy and he left gifts. Right. Well, what was happening, these people were leaving these offerings for their dead loved ones, and the demons were coming and taking them. And, uh, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, Uncle Joe over there is uh, really enjoying these tortillas that I'm leaving him, you know. And, and, and it, it kind of, it throws people off from the truth. You know, but Scripture tells us that that's not the case. When we die, our souls are absent from the body and present with the Lord. You know, that goes for everybody. We are either in that moment in awe and praise or in a deep state of realization and dread, uh, depending on our standing with the Lord at our physical passing. You know, what we know uh, as ghosts are actually demons. Now, if you boil it down to its base, demons have been present since before mankind. They were before, uh, uh, they were before being cast out of heaven servants of God. They were angels. They are immaterial spirits, and so they have the ability to follow and mimic people over the ages. And then when a person dies, mimic them as if their souls had remained. You know, this leads people that are devoid of the truth to the soothsayers, to the mediums, to Ouija boards, in an attempt to contact these people that they think are present. You know, we often see these people on TV ads or whatever, and, and, and can be... Uh, led to believe that these are phonies and so forth. But, you know, obviously if the Bible warns against them, they're, they're, you know, there must be power behind them. And so it's best to stay away from them. You know, I can remember situations, it, it, you know, in my past where um, I had an ex-girlfriend and, and her family really, I think once a year, paid for some psychic lady to come in and tell them their fortunes. And I just remember thinking, it's like, man, you guys are are, are, are devout Catholics, but still you go and do this. Like, 
I, I, you know, I always thought it was so phony. And, and, you know, looking back on it, I don't know if there was any truth to what that lady was telling them or, or what was going on. But, you, you know, the understanding is that it's a dark art that's going on right there. And, you know, when people are dead, people are entering into the afterlife. You're either in heaven and you're in, or you're in hell. You're judged immediately as soon as you pass. You know, your body is put into the ground. It, it begins to decompose. It decays. It goes away. But your soul lives on, whether it's in punishment or whether it's in glory. And, and you know, you don't stick around. There's no unfinished business where you're you're coming in and you're haunting your, uh, you know, your ex-wife's bathroom or something like that. That, that. That's not the case. What that is, is those are demons that have followed you and mimicked, learned to mimic you. And so over time, when somebody comes in and they say, oh, well, I just saw, you know, Mike in the mirror over there while I was brushing my teeth and he's been dead for six years. That must be his ghost. You know, it, it, it wouldn't be Mike's ghost. It would be a demon that's learned to mimic Mike throughout the past. And so that, that that's kind of what leads people down that path. And what it does is it pushes you further away from the truth because then you begin to doubt scripture. Now, before I go too much further, I want to share something with you from Matthew's uh, account of this incident. So in Matthew 20, uh, 8, 28, it said, When he had come to the other side of the country of the, uh, the gener Generacenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass the, uh, that way. So, if you read through the Gospels, Mark and Luke only mention one man, but Matthew mentions two in this same uh, description of what happened right here. Now, I'm sh not sure why, but I think this could be a way of showing how much worse off one was than the other, and the difference between somebody's zeal after being saved and another's. Now, consider now that these, two, uh, that these men were to reside among the tombs, often in the occult and witchcraft, uh, the use of relics or bones are something that is needed to perform rituals. So now I wonder if these two would enter the tombs and take the offerings that people would leave and maybe perform rituals, opening themselves up to demonic activity um, that, that, that was present there until ultimately they were taken over by them. Uh, per perhaps they even lived there, as it mentions. Uh, you know, they didn't have a house. Maybe they were homeless. Uh, they could have been beggars and sought shelter in the tombs that were taken. Remember, a tomb in that day was something that was hewn out of the rock. It was like a man-made cave where they would go and they would put the bodies of, of, of the dead into those places. So, I mean, it could be a place to duck out from the uh, the rain. Uh, as we just studied in the last study, you know, on the Sea of Galilee there, there were some pretty severe storms. And so that would probably be... Uh, a hiding place for these guys when it would rain or, or wind and storm and stuff like that. Um, we don't really know, but that's just some speculation from you from my own distorted mind. Now, there are two forces at work here if we look at this. Now, the first force is society. In verse 3 and 4, it tells us this. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Now this man was beyond human submission. It is known that a possessed individual is possessed by a supernatural entity, and therefore can possess supernatural strength. Now for the unbelieving world, 
there is often the perception that a demonic possession is just a mental illness uh, that a person has and thus locks them away or puts them into an asylum and drug, uh, drugs the physical body in a way that controls the ability for that person to function. You know, society's only solution is to isolate, subdue, and in some cases bind the possessed, but that is like putting a band-aid on a severed arm. It does nothing in most cases. Now, the second force we see at work is Satan. In verse 5, we read about the man's behavior. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. You know, Satan's main objective is to destroy and to do harm to individuals' relationship with God and even prevent them from coming to the light. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now again, I, uh, I gave some speculation about how these men may have gotten themselves possessed, but we have no idea the reason. It may just be a commit, uh, continued commitment to sin that led them to that situation as well, You know, going back and thinking about it. Now, look at their behavior. And I searched the internet to see what it had to say about uh, demonic possession, and it gave me this definition. It says, demonic possession is, a, it is held by many, uh, demonic possession is held by many belief systems to be the spirit possession of an individual by a malevolent, pre-natural, uh, uh, preternatural being commonly known as a demon. Possession of demonic, uh, descriptions of demonic possessions often include erased memories or personalities, convulsions, fits, and fainting, as if one were dying. Other descriptions include access to hidden knowledge and foreign languages, drastic changes in vocal innotation and facial uh, structure, and sudden appearance or, of injuries or lesions and superhuman strength. Now, unlike in channeling the subject, uh, ha has no control over the possessing entity, so it will persist until forced to leave the victim, usually through a form of exorcism. Now, this is a pretty clear description of what we are seeing from the possessed man uh, that Jesus encounters. Um, Warren Wearsby writes this, Demons are unclean spirits and can easily get a hold of the, a foothold in the lives of people who cultivate sinful practices. Because they yielded to Satan, the thief, these two men lost everything. They lost their homes and the fellowship with their families and friends. They lost their decency as they ran around in the tombs naked. They lost their self-control and lived like wild animals, screaming and cutting themselves and frightening the citizens. They lost their peace and their purpose for living. They would have remained in the, that plight had Jesus not come through a storm to rescue them. You know, possession is a powerful tool of the devil, but there is a greater power than he. And, you know, he may have the power over the body, but never the soul. In Mark chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, that you do not uh, torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. 
Now, Jesus is the antidote to all outside influences. You know, we should never underestimate the power of Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know, he is waiting around every corner. He is influencing the minds of people from all walks of life. But he is not, he is not for you. He is against you. His mission is entrapment. It is bondage. It is destruction. On the other hand, there's Jesus, who frees all who are willing from sin, from bondage, and from destruction unto eternal life. You know, Jesus comes to this land in order to preach the gospel to those that live there. As he arrived, he is met by these two men. In verse 6, we see that the man, and I'll use the singular because we're following the text from Mark and not Matthew. You know, even though we know that there were two men, I'm assuming this is the worst of them. The man runs up and begins to worship Jesus. Now, even demons are subject to God's rule. Now look at verse 7 and, and, and the way that the demon speaks to Jesus. And he cried out in a loud voice. You know, this is a cry of fear or uh, of defense and of rebellion. One does not cry out like that unless they are being stopped or disrupted in what they are doing. You know, if you look at the world today and a recent example of, uh, of just such an occurrence, would be the bill that passed recently in Florida that barred teachers from teaching on sexual orientation of any kind to kindergarten through third grade uh, children. You know, it was met with cries of unfairness, hate, several phobias, and so many other things. But what is exposed is not just in Florida, but all over the country, the hearts of the teachers that are doing this kind of stuff. And I know that it's a minority of the teachers that are out there. You know, personally, there are teachers in this Bible study group. My, my own brother is a teacher, and I know for sure that he wouldn't be teaching any kind of stuff like that. But, you know, social media, the news outlets, all these different places are exposing these people that are trying to push this stuff on kids, and they're crying out for it because they were basically busted in it. And now, the, you know, the jig is up, the spotlight is on them, and, and there's trouble coming. You know, it's kind of the same thing that was happening with these demons. They were going off and they were just living the life inside this man and, uh, you know, scaring people, running amok and doing whatever. But now the authority is there. Jesus is there and they're crying out. They're afraid. They're busted. The jig is up for these guys, right? They're like, oh man, what is he going to do with us? Please don't torture her. You know, um, you know, the main problem, uh, that was happening with these uh, people in the schools is what they're doing is they're using the classroom as a means of swaying children into a belief that they're of another gender and not the gender that they are clearly born as, right? This institutes the lie that God made mistakes, that he is not all powerful. You are in control and anybody that says otherwise is backwards and bigoted. Now, I, I, I say that to tell you this. You know, if, if the lie is being spread, if, if people are being taught to doubt the word of God, if people are being taught to doubt real, uh, to deal, uh, doubt basically reality and how to deal with reality, they're being taught uh, against the natural ways that God has, has created for us. Now, can you think of somebody in a garden, let's call it the Garden of Eden, that caused somebody to doubt God? Uh, you know, and, and concerning the, 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 the school teachers and, and this that it was happening, um, you know, it's a very rough worldview that's going on. And 
basically what's happening is they're teaching people to doubt God. But think about it. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan came in and he taught Eve to doubt God. And what happened? She fell and then Adam fell. And from then on, we have sin in the world, right? You know, these cries that the de demons were making were demonic because the act of, is demonic. The same thing that's happening with these teachers. Their cries are demonic and because their acts are demonic. Um, it, it says here, what have I to do with you, Jesus, the son of the most high God? No. The question that the demons are asking is, what are you here for? Why are you stopping me from doing what I'm doing? You know, when we witness to others in this day and age, we're usually met with some pluralistic answer, right? You know, I used to tell my brother Keith when he would approach me that I was living a good life and being nice to people as an excuse. You know, I'm sure we've all heard that the, we all choose our own path uh, excuse or it's my problem, not yours. Or the ever-present, all paths lead to God, but uh, but they're all different, is another fun one. You know, we know they're untrue. Those people might not know it. They might have been deceived into believing that. But, uh, you know, it's the same thing here. You know, when, when you go to witness somebody, why are, why, are you, uh, why are you here? I'm living my own life. You know, leave me alone. It's the same thing that the demons are here uh, doing. You know, I can talk about uh, all day about what it's like to confront somebody about sin or addiction, but there's never a belief that uh, what the person is doing is wrong when it comes to that person. You know, in the case of this demon, its belief was that the one, th this one person that it was killing was just a gnat in the ocean, right? Why bother with this one person? Why not let me have them? Is basically the idea that the, these demons had. Now, I'll tell you why not, though. I'll tell you why Jesus went to them. You know, we serve the God of salvation. We serve the God that would leave the 99 to find the one. And that's exactly what he did. Think about it. In chapter 4 in Mark, you know, very much, pretty much the same day as we're describing right now, as we're going through this story, he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee with a crowd so big that he had to get off the land and onto a boat so that he wouldn't get crushed. These were all people that wanted to see him. These were the 99, if you think about it. But what did he do? He crossed the sea in a tempest that was, you know, pretty much demonically induced as a means to try to kill him, to come across the ocean, uh, not the ocean, but the sea, to get to these two individuals, and this one in particular, to save them. You know, that is leaving the 99 to get to the one. Think about that. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is compassionate, He is loving, and He is great. You know, when Jesus uh, approached this demon-possessed man, He did it in love. He did it in compassion. He did it in having respect for the individual that was possessed. You know, no matter what the sin or the problem that a person may have, that person is still redeemable in the eyes of God, and thus should be treated in the same regards. But all of us here... Uh, are his ambassadors, right? It says, I implore you, do not, uh, you know, we should be treating people the same way as his ambassadors. We should have compassion on those that are out there. We look around the landscape today and we see so many people confused with, you know, transgenderism and uh, homosexuality. Uh, you know, those are two things among uh, a, a myriad of other different alternate realities that we see taking fold. But you know what? We still need to be treating people with respect. We need to have compassion on those people. We need to witness to those people. Because you know what? God is for them too. He loves them too.
And, and no matter what, he would save them too if they decided to repent. And so always treat people with respect. It says here, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now this is interesting because the way the demon speaks to Jesus here is a means of the demon trying to protect himself from Jesus. Now, I thought this was pretty interesting, and I'll read to you from the commentary that I, that I study from, or one of them anyway, and uh, Craig Keener writes this on this. In ancient, ancient, magical, uh, in ancient magic, practitioners often invoked higher spirits to drive out lower spirits, and the demons here appear to the, uh, appeal to the only one higher that Jesus, uh, than Jesus to keep Jesus from driving them out. You know, in the ESV translation, it says, I adjure you by God. I implore you in the New King James. You know, this language invokes a curse on Jesus if he does not comply. Now, phrases like I adjure you and I know you appear in ancient exorcism texts, texts as self-protective invocations to bind the spiritual opponent. Now, the attempt at a magical self-protection proved powerless against Jesus, though. Well, you know, we must remember that Jesus is God in the flesh. There is none higher than he. The triune God that we serve is Father, Son, and Spirit. But as uh, but all have equal authority while serving in different roles and different offices. You know, Jesus then orders the demon out of the man. In many ancient exorcism texts, getting the name of the Spirit is a means of controlling the Spirit. And thus Jesus asks the name, the, uh, the reason being that that there were multitude uh, a multiple demons in this person right now this is the only place in in all of scripture that jesus asks the name and i think it's because he knew that there were more than one in there you know god is omniscient and so that no num uh, number was known you know we may uh, we have though in the bible an example of god's abundant control over evil uh, uh, you know by this action by him asking for the names you know, the response that came from the demon, that they were, uh, there were many, shows us the great distress that this man was captivated by. You know, a legion could consist of 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. This man that was possessed was not only being oppressed by a demon, but thousands. You know, could you imagine the anguish that that had to be causing him? Could you imagine what this man's soul was going through as, as thousands of demons were in his mind? And, and, and just going through that and just, just bombarding him with all these evil thoughts and actions and stuff. You know, it would be such a dark place. And, and, you know, thank God he went to save him. You know, with the simple command, the demons know it's time to go. And so we get verse 10. And it says, also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out to the country. In Matthew 28, verse 29, it says, and suddenly they cried out saying, what have you to uh, have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come out here to torment us before the time? In Luke eight thirty one, it says, and they begged him that he would not command them to uh, to go out into the abyss. You know the demons knew and know that judgment is reserved for them, but what they are doing by asking that uh, that they be spared are two different things. The first is they are praying; they are seeking God's will for their lives, even though. They are in opposition. You know, they are still under his authority. And second, they show that even the demons have no control over their destiny. By asking Jesus to spare them from judgment at that moment, they demonstrated that they are still subject to his timing and his orders. 
Satan knows his end, but has no idea when or, or how it's going to happen. Right? He might know the scriptures. He might have read the scriptures. But he still doesn't know when that time is coming. And so, uh, you know, he is on his heels just as we are waiting for the return of Christ. Because it's going to happen. And, you know, for all those of us that believe, it's going to be a glorious time. For him, okay, he's going to get his seven-year run. But after that, you know, he's going to the abyss. And these guys were waiting for that. They expected themselves to come to and end up in the abyss, to be tortured and tormented in hell forever. In verse 11, it says, Now a large, uh, large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So what we see here is that Satan has no regard for the people that he influences. We know that this was a Gentile area because there were pigs present. Pigs are unclean animals in the Jewish community. They're not even allowed to touch them. So this was an obviously Gentile occupied area. But look at what the demons do here and the request that they make. Send us to the swine that we may enter them. You know, they didn't care that they were going to be out of the map, but they were seeking anything to possess. You know, that should tell us something. And that something is that in Satan's eyes, we are no greater than pigs. You know, you look at the world today and the New Age religions that value animals and the earth in such a way that they would rather have the people around them, not themselves, of course, die for the sake of an earthworm. You know, you look at the attitude of the demons here. They didn't care that they were out of the man that they had possessed. They could have gone back into the tombs and taken somebody else, but instead they had so little regard for anything that dealt with life and requested to go into the pigs, right? Now, upon entering the pigs, we see that there were about 2,000 of them. They immediately destroyed them by running over a cliff and drowning. Now, I think the reason and I've had to think about this a lot today, that they don't kill the hosts that they possess, humans I mean, is that man has an eternal will to fight back, a will to survive. And no matter how powerless a person may be against a demon, there is still that still small part that will fight. You know, demons will cause a person to cut themselves, to mutilate and starve themselves, to act erratically, to cause themselves severe harm. But it's not; it's a prolonged process. And that leads to death. And in most cases, if the person does not get saved, you know, they will uh, eventually die. You know, that's why it's so important that a person hear the gospel when they are in that position. You know, it takes a strong believer to be in the room. You must never get into a physical altercation with demons. You know, they may yell and scream and hurl accusations. But we have an advocate in heaven as well as the Holy Spirit at all times. You know, we have to appeal to the person and not the demon. When the person accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life immediately, and the demon is forced out. You know, scriptures and some stories that I've heard uh, from actual exorcism tell us that when a demon is expelled, the person will vomit some nasty green substance, uh, they may convulse, and that they are physically exhausted afterwards. Some of them will even, uh, you, you know, be hurled across a room. It, it, it's a pretty violent thing. But that person is transformed by the redemptive power of Jesus Christ at that moment. 
You know, no matter though how bad a person that is possessed is, we must remember that there is a person inside there and that God loves that person more than anything in this universe. And that when we go out in faith and give the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation, the message of the cross, that person inside there can be saved just like you and me. In verse 14, it says, so those who fed the swine and, 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 so those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they were out to see what, uh, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then it came to Jesus. Uh, then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed, and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him, and who had been uh, who had been demon possessed, and about the swine. Then they begged and pleaded with him to depart from their region. You know, despite the power of God on display, a materialistic, materialistic world will continue to reject him. So we see now the hired hands of the owners of the pigs go out and tell the owners what has happened. The owners come out and see the man that they were basically afraid of, uh, that they had tried to isolate and chain up, now sitting clothed and normal as a cloud of skiers on a hot July afternoon. And all these people could do was ask Jesus to leave because they, uh, their livelihoods and their money was at risk. You know, we all live in a materialistic world with mater a materialistic worldview. Instead of seeing the demon-possessed men now uh, no longer possessed, but in their right minds and rejoicing, they looked over the other way over the cliff. You know, it makes you wonder if the guy was related to anybody from the town. And maybe they had decided long ago to disown him. You know, no matter the case, though, the man was a new creation in the eyes of the Lord. And from that point forward, he would be used in a mighty way. Take a look at verse 17. It says, And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you, how, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. You know, Jesus is glorified in the lives of transformed sinners. This man had been possessed, abused, mutilated, cut, chained up, tied up, an absolute lunatic for, uh, for who knows how long. But as soon as Jesus got a hold of him, he was trans a transformed man. You know, we see that he wanted to go to be and be with Jesus, and he wanted to be in the presence of, and honestly, you know, knowing that he is our hope and he is our destination, you know, we can sometimes want to be in heaven with him as well, right? You, you know, you can't hold no fault to this man. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be in his presence. Um, but beforehand, for him and also for us, we have work to do, just as this man did, right? You see, just Jesus sent him out to preach about all that had happened to him. In fact, in Scripture, this is the first man in the New Testament that Jesus sends out to preach. Now, we've all heard testimonies, right? And testimonies can be pretty powerful. What would you do if you went to church one day and, you know, you had a guest speaker and the speaker gets up there and says, you know what, man? I was possessed by a legion of demons. I lived in tombs. I cut myself. I chased people around. 
I broke chains when people put them on me. But Jesus got a hold of me and he changed my life. And look at me now. Look where he has put me. He's put me to come and tell you that whatever, anything is going on in your life, Jesus can remove that too. What kind of a powerful message would that be? You know, you know, there were no churches in that area. And I doubt synagogues in that area, being that it was a Gentile area. You know, when he went back to Decapolis, uh, he may have went to the town market and preached the gospel and, 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 and gave his account of what happened or the pagan temples or would be another place or on the street corner. Or he may have even started with his own family when they saw that he was no longer foaming at the mouth and let him back in. But verse 20 tells us that people marveled at what Jesus had done for him. You know, seeing is believing. And I know that people saw what this man was preaching and did not just hear it. You know, we never hear from him again in scripture, but we will have an opportunity to meet him in heaven at some point. You know, we often hear that God has a plan for us and that he wants to use us. Well, that plan is never going to, uh, is, is never going to be to use us as agents of wealth and collection. That plan is to use us as agents of change. You know, what God can do with the repentant heart and a willing vessel is monumental. We are his greatest treasures as well as his great, as well as his greatest assets when we allow ourselves to be used. You know, we've got to learn to show first the love and compassion that Jesus showed the man in the tombs and then be willing to share the experience of Christ with others as the man in the tombs did in the city. You know, if we want to glorify God, we are going, aren't going to do it with necklaces and t-shirts with crosses and slogans on them. You know, we're going to do it through life change and the proclamation of change as a result of our beliefs. No matter where we have been or what we have done, Jesus saves and Jesus can use us. You know, he did not go to the cross for white people or Americans or Westerners like the world tells you. He didn't go for the rich or for the poor. He didn't go for the smart or the wise or the proud. He went for everybody that is willing to surrender. His salvation is freedom and the bondage, of, uh, freedom from the bondage, pain, influence, and torture of sin. You know, our testimony is his work in us. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we'll finish with this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father God, Lord, thank you for your compassion, for your love, Lord. Father, for each and every one of us, Lord, you've left the 99 to find us. Father, I pray that anybody that doesn't know you would take this time to look at that, Lord, to see just what you're willing to go through to save us. Father, I pray today that anybody listening that does not know you would pray, Lord, would just ask and, and, and just uh, open their hearts to you, Lord, that you would open their, not, their their eyes, their heart and their soul to the truth, Lord, to your truth, to the, you know, the truth uh, of eternal life, of salvation, of grace, of peace, of love. Father, I thank you so much for all that you've done in my life, Lord, that you've changed me. And although I'm still a sinner, Lord, I know that you have me and that you keep me. Father, I thank you so much for all that you do for us and all that you give to us. Father, I pray that you would just go before us this week, Lord. Help us to, uh, you know, to live lives of change, live lives of compassion, and live lives of Christ. Father, I thank you, and I just ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.